Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other good podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And tonight I have a special guest with me, Dr. Mark Jones, pastor at Faith Reform Presbyterian Church in Vancouver, Canada. Um, he's the author of multiple books, including God Is, Knowing Christ, and the book we're going to be discussing this evening, Knowing Sin. Well, Dr. Jones, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me on. So give us a little bit of background on yourself um, and before we dive into our topic today. I'm a pastor uh, at Faith Vancouver Presbyterian Church, as you, you, you mentioned. I've, I've been there for about 15 years, so uh, it's been a uh, wonderful ministry. I'm also working on setting up a seminary in South Africa, specifically in Cape Town, called Trinity Reform College. We want to um, pro um, provide education, uh, affordable, affordable theological education for pastors who weren't trained properly, properly so aspiring ministers. And, and I travel quite a bit to speak on different topics, whether Brazil or Australia, China, various various. So, uh, but most of my, most of my, my ministries too is taken up with the local church and I have four children and a wife and we're very um, privileged to um, enjoy Canada, but also privileged to serve the church, church place where, where the church particularly strong. Well, that's great. Great. Um, so talking about our topic tonight, so you wrote a new book um, called Knowing Sin um, that covers really kind of a, gives a very broad overview of sin and, and dives into some of the nuances relating to the topic. Um, what inspired you to write uh, on this topic and why did you think it was important to take a deep dive into it? I think sin is something we will as Christians, especially evangelical or reformed Christians, will say yeah, we're sinners, we love the cross, the grace of God, but I feel like in our preaching we don't really diagnose sin as well as, as we, we could as past. And so given my, my own stroll ministry, given what I see uh, throughout, throughout the world, I felt we needed a book we are reacquainted with sin in all of its ugliness, but also in all of its specifics. So there's a lot of specific sins I deal with. And, and so there's general principles and specific ones. And I think, think we need that to preach well and for Christ to be precious and, and grace be, um, you know, so amazing as we sing. You need to have a robust dust of sin. Yeah, it's like you need to understand what the bad news is before you can really appreciate the good news. Yeah, yeah. Even as Christians, you know, it's not just an evangelistic tool. It's a tool for us as Christians to to really understand, understand the power of indwelling dwelling sin as many faces in our, in our day walk. Yeah, I, I think it's easy for us to, as Christians, to get comfortable and forget you know, the, the seriousness of sin and, and what the cost that our Lord had to pay in order to save us from it. Yeah. Uh, why did you take the approach that you did um, through the eyes of the Puritans? I know that's in the title of your book that you kind of take it from that perspective. Um, why did you want to go that route? I did, did my... Uh, Dissertation, my, my PhD work, actually my, my master's work, too, uh, firstly on John Owen and then Tom Thomas Wynn. And I read obviously quite a bit of 
Puritan literature always found that they had a, they had an amazing pastoral sense, but, but also they were very deep in their theological training and highly sophisticated theologians. So uh, it, it just, just seemed to me that I needed to make use of a lot of, a lot of things I'd learned from them and try to package a lot, a lot of this um, stuff from, from various authors into what is an accessible treatment, I hope, without, you know, making it uh, dumbed down too much. So, so I think the Puritans are very um, sharp, very um, memorable language phrases, and, and, and that uh, uh, was the reasons I cho chose to work through their, their eyes, so to speak. And they provide a lot of good, I mean, you, you talk about John Owen, that's some, uh, a lot of powerful things that we can uh, pull from him, um, especially on the, like the doctrine of God. And, and even, you know, he wrote a book on sin, the mortification of sin. Yeah. Um, a lot of very helpful things. And you dive into men too, like Thomas Brooks, you know, the doctrine of repentance and, yeah. and the Puritans pulled no punches when it came to dealing with sin. Yeah. Now, in chapter two, um, you talk about sin as being imputed guilt. Um, now, why is it important for us to have a proper anthropology when we're discussing this topic of sin? And how does that affect things like covenant theology? That's a, a tricky and controversial uh, question when we think of imputed guilt. People, you know, a lot of the average evangelical probably agree with with original sin to some, to some extent, but it developed, developed over time. And as you get to the Reformation and post-Reformation eras, you get this idea of the two Adams, uh, and the idea of imputation of Adam's guilt, so that when Adam sinned, uh, his, his guilt was due to us, not, not just a, a sin, sinful nature, but we are guilt, guilty at the moment of conception. We're not just polluted, but guilty. And what people need to understand is that answers to the imputation of, of Christ's righteousness to us, which is uh, the same principle at stake, and that there, you, you have John Murray's classic treatment in Rome, Romans 5, but if you go back to the Puritans, like Tom Goodwin, he has a, a extended treatment of Adamic guilt, um, and basically, basically him and Owen and others, others draw the conclusion that those who deny imputed guilt have to also then deny imputed righteousness because it answers us to imputed guilt. Yeah, that's what Paul's argument is. And, you know, if you're you're either in Adam or in Christ, there's this imputation through the federal head mm -hmm. on either side. Yeah, if you can't have one without the other. And I guess that, that leads us into our next question. You know, you talk about total depravity as well. And what does this doctrine really say? And this is another controversial area as it relates to sin. Yeah. Um, what does this have to do with our human condition? And I guess tying that back to imputed guilt. Yeah, for me, it's important to understand that total depravity is uh, it, it's it's as a rich ped pedigree it's to be understood in terms of the canons of Dort. If you read the, the section on sin and, and what total depravity uh, means according to the framers, you'll typically find that it incorporates total inability. So the the question is raised: is what is depravity? It, it's that it has affected us at, in every part of our being. Not that, that we are as bad as we can possibly be, but that we are um, affected in every area, even even soul, not just soul. So that has different manifestations according according to our weaknesses as individuals. But uh, that is this to say then that Christians are not 
best described as totally depraved anymore. We have indwelling sin since the dominion of sin has been broken and since since when Christ, we are no longer totally, totally depraved because uh, the inability to respond to, to God has been uh, broken by the work of the Spirit and Christ. Uh, total depravity is typically a doctrine reserved for unbelievers who, who have to be brought out of that, that state of wrath to a state of grace. Yeah, it's like Mercy Sproul used to say, you know, he preferred to use the term total inability rather than total depravity. It seems to fit better with, even though it, it can, you know, it ca saying total depravity does capture the essence. It, it can, I think, lead people to think that we're saying we're as bad as we could be and we're not yeah. saying that. No. And that can definitely cause confusion. Because yeah. really the issue is, you know, are we able to respond to God's call, are we able to do anything that is really good? And the scriptures, Romans three says we can't. Yeah, there's yeah. none is righteous, not one. Yeah, no, it's 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 a fair way to understand the natural man, but the supernatural man who is indwelt by the Christ, who aims to please God, is 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 not one best described totally depraved. Though we still affirm firm very powerfully indwelling sin. Yeah. Yeah, because if we're considered totally depraved, we're in the condition of the unbeliever, yeah. and we're a new creation now in Christ, and, and we are free to do that, which is really good, notwithstanding our indwelling sin. Yeah. Yep. Now, talking about, you know, in chapter three, you set out really to define the essence of sin, um, and you define sin as the privation of the moral good where it should be. And I think this forms the basis of your understanding of sin. And what do, what implications does this have as we talk about sin? For me, the, the, the doctrine of it's Augustine, um, it goes back to in terms of privation. But uh, we, we have like privation in terms of the lack of righteousness. So... It's the loss of original righteousness or the absence of, of, of good. And there's also, also the flip side of that is positive inclination, which is we are inclined towards evil. So Thomas Goodwin speaks about the negative side or, or positive inclination um, in terms of like our, our inordinate lusts of the, of the flesh and an, an enmity towards God. So we lack something. something. But then we are also negatively doing things that is wrong. That's where we get the idea of sin of omission and sin of, sin of commission. Uh, that we fail to do, to do and that what we do is linked to sin understood in terms of privation, a lack of righteousness, but also inclination towards what is evil. And it's interesting when you look at the privation view, it really helps us to explain, you know, when we're talking about God as being the author of evil, that is a common um, accusation thrown at Calvinists. Um, if we say that God is not, you know, that sin is a privation of the good, then God can't create that which doesn't exist, in, in, that has an essence. And I think you bring that up in the book a little bit. Um, but it's a very helpful argument. And we find that like in the in the Westminster standards, you know, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity. It's the lack of conformity to God's law. Sin is lawlessness. It's the lack of law. It's a lack of good we're good ought to be. It's a very helpful argument when we're dealing with the other side, I think. 
Yeah, it's uh, you know what's interesting is to me, me as a pastor, it also gets to the heart of the, the, the Christian ethic that that we're not need to stop sinning but be righteous. So in Ephesians four, um, you know, Paul doesn't just, just let the thief no longer steal, for example, or uh, but let him let him charge so that he may have something to share with those in need. There's positive side side of Christian, and that that is just exemplified, of course, our Savior who not, not only did not sin. You know, people talk about Christ never sinned, but what is perhaps more important is that the reason he didn't sin is he was he was always doing that which was was right, and so the way the way we start from sinning is not by not by not sinning it's by doing that that which is good uh, to counter sin. So it, it's a very important doctrine to get right in terms of even our sanctification. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it, we're not in any neutral state. You know, we're we're either going to be doing that which is righteous or following the privation of of our natures. Yeah. Now, in, in chapter five, you you take on the the controversial topic of Romans seven and whether you know, it's talking about an unbeliever or a believer, um, and you take the view that it's talking about a believer. Um, why do you believe that is the case from Romans seven? Um, and that this is not giving us the picture of an unbeliever. Tough, tough question because I, I think in recent years, years what we found is exegetically more and more reformed um, theologians are, are are perhaps shifting to the view that this was Paul under the law, or it's, it's a sort of historical um, issue going on, and Paul seeing you know you know not just as individual but Israel's um, tenure under the law and. Things like that. So there are some. I think there's some, some powerful. If you look at uh, the the formation post Reformation era, there is definitely the side side where Paul speaks speaking as a believer. And I think it was was Arminius where where his change started to happen from being reformed to what he became when he changed his view of Romans seven to Paul was not speaking as a Christian. And uh, I I think people. Well, don't want to, to make the existential factor of what Paul goes through determinative for their exegesis, but I still find that overall it has powerful sway, at least with me, in terms of how Christians think, think about the experience. So something so powerfully reinforces how, how we relate to God. It it it's that's always carried some weight with me. I do think that exegetically it can also be sustained danger it's not like not like we're just being out of thin air so um, um i'm not it's not as i'm willing to die, die on i think there are some better treatments um but you know you look at you look at uh, various um, theologians and I, I think it's important to, to understand that even if and if you were to take the the view that isn't paul as a believer i think a lot of those people would still say they recognize that struggle in their own life um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, tr- a tricky one. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, and I, I think like you said, it has become more controversial over the years. I think if you look historically at, in the reformed tradition, by and large, it's, it's been that this is talking about a believer. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if you see if that's implied in the Westminster. I know in our confession, the 1689 it's definitely affirmed, yeah. um, that it is talking about a believer. It, um, and it seems to be a more recent development, although I think Augustine did believe that it was talking about an unbeliever, then changed his mind, according to Calvin. 
Um, yeah, so uh, I think it's kind of a, it's been a struggle throughout church history. Yeah, I think the Cranfield has a, a, a powerful argument. I may, I think I cite it where he, he just, you know, for him, verse 25 is the sort of, basically he says, he says it's an embarrassment to those who uh, see in verse four the cry of an unconverted man. And so he um, sees the, the deliverance in verse 25 and, and stuff. Uh, um, I think that, that's key, is verse 25, um, um, the wretched man that is delivered through, through Jesus Christ, uh, or is it someone, who, someone who's unknowing uh, the, the loves and in his flesh? And, and yeah, it's it, 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 Cranfield having bar tendencies, I think still the best treatment, treatment of Romans 7. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's really, I think, where the struggle is. It's like there's, there's, you can almost see both sides of the coin in the text. Um, but I, I do think that the, the cries that Paul is giving are not characteristic of, a, of an unbeliever. The believer doesn't care that the law of God is, uh, is precious to him or not, that he loves it. He doesn't care that it, that sin is bothering him in this way. That's, that's really characteristic of a believer. Yeah. Well, in chapter eight, um, you take on the topic of secret sins. And, and there's a quote by Thomas Watson that stood out to me. Um, I'll just read it real quick. Uh, it says, let me warn you this day not to sin in secret. Know that you can never sin so privately, but that there are always two witnesses by uh, God and conscience. And how can these concepts help us as Christians in our sanctification? I read, I read a quote, I think, I think today, Matthew Henry just speaks about how, how our secret sins or our sins in private are, are actually our are, are speech to God. So it's interesting when you, when you read it that, that way, uh, uh, that we speak to God in secret, because right? he hears, you know, what we see to man is, is one thing, but what God sees and hears is, is quite another and I think to me, it, it shows that we do need to get to the real heart of the issue. Issue. It's easy to reform being behavior in a certain certain sense, to stop swearing or punching people or whatever it may be. Um, there's a lot of outward actions we can easily manage with enough willpower. The natural man can't do that. The Christian, Christian can get to the root, the root of the issue. That's the thought, thoughts, the inclinations, the emotions, the secret sins. And that's what we have to deal with. What we are in private needs to reflect who we are in public to some degree. I know there's always going to be some differences uh, just by the nature of better, but it's, it's important not to be a com completely different person in public than you are in private. So, so uh, I would worry for a Christian who whose private life reflects nothing of their public life. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Is then we fall under the condemnation of Christ of being a hypocrite. Yeah. Um, and we're not, we're not being honest or genuine. No. Um, but it's so easy to forget, right? You know, we're, where it really comes down to unbelief or whether I believe what God has said in his word or not. Um, do I believe that what, what, what he has commanded is to be followed and what he has forbidden is really sin or am I just going to do what I want to do? Mm -hmm. And I think because we, we can't see God, we tend to forget that. Even as Christians, we tend to forget that and we go on our merry way. Yeah, yeah, and they're very dangerous sins because, um, you know, we, we 
would never do some of those things in secret that we would do in public. So what, what's so dangerous about secret sins is, is God does does put people in our lives and others to help us not sin because, you know, you know I'm going to go to church and, and, and start swearing at people because it would just be bad for me. Now, there's, there's some good in that. Like, there's a good thing about like, um, encouragement and exhortation. So, so the danger of secret sins is you're up to yourself. If you don't have the spirit and you don't have the fear of God, of God, you can go down very dangerous paths in your in your Christian living. Yeah, you know, that's a good point about the gathering of the saints. It is really a protection for us. We call them the means of grace for a reason, I think. They help keep us on track and, and keep us accountable. And it's very hard to sin, like you said, when we're around other believers. That's a very good point. Think about how, how people listen to sermons, sermons in church versus what, what, pandemic when, when they're at home, had them on their computer. And, you know, they're going up and making coffee and sometimes just leaving, go to the bat. Like they're just, just you know, I kind of liken that to our public and private, private living. It's, you know, we'll, we'll do things at home when a, when a sermon's on where we're far less concerned to be giving our best attention to, be, you know, we, we allow ourselves to get away with a lot more. So um, it's just important to understand what our human nature is like to take a, a close look at our secret sins and make sure we try, we try to mortify those by, by God's spirit. Amen. Yeah, and, and yeah. that might be why the writer of Hebrews tied the meeting of ourselves together with encouraging one another. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stirring one another up to good works, yeah. Amen. So, so when is the book going to be released, or has it been released already? It's been released, uh, and I've been quite happy with how it's been received so far, especially since it's a book on sin. And in a weird way, I think people feel like they, they do read this book's book, so it's been it's it's been well received so so far. Uh, uh, I've had a lot, a lot of friends reach out and thank me. And um, you never know with the book. You know, some fall dead on arrival, as it were, uh, and some seem to do to do well. You, 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 it's it's just I, I've committed it to the to the Lord. You, vainly, we, we hope our our books do well. But I've I've just said, you know what? If this is a, a good, <laughs> bless it, and if it's not, crush it. And uh, you know, and I'll leave to leave it to the Lord. Amen. And we people can find it at, at Booty Publishers, like, correct? Can they find it on Amazon? Yeah, yeah Amazon. It's on Amazon for me. Uh, Heritage Books, Westminster Theological Seminary Books, for example, mm-hmm. they all have, have some pretty good deals. Uh, it's it's not hard to find, and you should be able to get it for as little as ten dollars, or even under ten dollars. Look, and, and uh, if if it's it's no good, good, um, you can write to me at my church and ask for a refund, and I'll uh, see what I can do. All right. <laughs> Well, Pastor Jones, thank you for joining me today. Uh, Very important topic. Uh, And to listeners, go get his book, Knowing Sin. Find it at Moody Publishers, Amazon, and and other places uh, where books are sold. Well, thank you again, Dr. Jones, for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. And with that, everyone, have a great weekend and great Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.